walked all the way back down the dusty path to the river. For the future of my small son, I had hoped to give him a better life. But I knew how Dave Schwartz would answer that question, so yes! We love it's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family since 2013. We've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's my pleasure to be with you. And we're going to get a little of all of that today. Some folk tales, some fairy tales, some personal tales. You'll hear Lanny Peterson tell about the moment that made her a storyteller. You'll hear Dolores Haddock tell about an experience with a high school dance in which she hoped to find her perfect match. It's one of my favorite Dolores Haddock stories. You'll hear from Priscilla Howe with an Anansi story about that clever spider, the tricks he plays, and the tricks others play on him. And finally, you'll hear Beatrice Bowles with a fairy tale about an old woman who lived in a vinegar bottle. You won't want to miss a word, and to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Samantha Danes, one of our assistant producers. Samantha, great to have you with me. Good to be here. We're going to hear a Lanny Peterson story with kind of an interesting title. This story is called Maya's Story for Indira. That's a pretty evocative title. Tell, tell us a little bit about the tale. Yeah, so this is a story of Lanny Peterson in her days before she was a storyteller and her encounter with a woman named Indira, um, a mother. And Lanny Peterson finds herself trying to comfort this woman um, who's going through a lot of difficulty and ends up telling a story um, to sort of help. Hmm. I think it's a good tribute to how stories can really help um, break down the barriers between us and help us help each other. There are there are things that are difficult to talk about that are easier to talk about in a story. Yeah, that's part of why I love them yeah. so much. <laughs> well, here's the story from Lenny Peterson, Maya's story for Indira, here on The Appleseed. I've not always been a storyteller. At least I haven't always thought of myself as a storyteller. I was actually trained as a psychologist and spent most of my time listening to the stories of others. But all that changed one night. It was a miserable night in February. Sleeting, cold, mucky streets, just a horrible night. And as I headed off to the auditorium to talk about children and self-esteem, I thought, I will be the only one there. So it was to my great surprise when I entered the room to find 300 people waiting for me. All right, here I go, I said, and I launched into the latest theories of children and self-esteem about positive discipline and how to raise strong and healthy children. As the hour came to a close, I opened the floor to questions and heard those questions I had heard so many times before. How many extracurricular activities does my child need to engage in to ensure that she goes to Yale? Is it appropriate for my child to be studying three or four hours a night? 
I've been yelling at my child a lot recently. Is, is that okay? Is, is he going to be all right? One by one, I gave the latest theories on child rearing to ease these parents' concerns and was ready to bring the evening to a close when I noticed one last hand in the back of the auditorium. Yes, you, I pointed, and slowly I saw a small woman rise to her feet. She was dressed in a beautiful sari of bright colors. Her black hair pulled tight back into a bun, and a red dot graced the center of her forehead. My name is Indira. I came to this country just two years ago upon the death of my husband. I came here for the future of my small son. I had hoped to give him a better life. But the children here have not been kind. They do not include him in their games. They say he looks funny. He talks funny. Some even say he smells funny. And each night he cries himself to sleep and says, Let's go home, Mama. And each night I too cry myself to sleep, wondering if trying to give him a better life, perhaps I have hurt him instead. So I ask you now, should we stay or should we go? The weight of this woman's question rested so heavily upon me how in this brief time could I possibly give her anything that could help her on her journey? So I closed my eyes and went deep inside to see what, if anything, might come. And what I got was a story. May I tell you a story, I asked, and I took her silence as a yes. And so I began to tell a story I had not thought of in 20 years. When I was in college, my roommate used to write for the school newspaper. Every Friday night, she would go into town to cover a dance, a play, music, and come back and write about it and have a story herself ready for the Monday morning issue of our newspaper. Well, on this particular Friday evening, as I was getting ready to go out to the movies with a group of my friends, I looked over and noticed her still lying on her bed with a pale green tint to her face. Are you okay? I asked. No, she said, I'm miserable. Is there anything I can do to help you? Yes, she said. Would you, would you please go out and cover a poetry reading for me tonight? It's really very simple. It's just in town. You need to listen to the poet, go back stage afterwards, ask her a couple of questions, come home and write it up in time for Monday morning, would you? And so it was that I reluctantly put aside my plans for the movies and headed into town for a poetry reading. I sat in the darkened auditorium, tapping my foot, waiting for this evening to be over. And as the lights went down and the spot came up in the center, the most magnificent woman I have ever seen walked like a dancer across the stage. 
She was dressed in a magnificent, brilliantly colored caftan, her head in a turban that made her look taller than her six feet. And as she reached the center of the stage, she began to recite her poetry. But she didn't just speak the words, she sang them. I walk into a room just as cool as you please, and to a man the fellows stand or fall down on their knees. And then they start a humming, a hive of honeybees, and I say, it's in the reach of my hand, the gaze of my eyes, the need for my care, cause I'm a woman, phenomenally, phenomenal woman, that's me and you. And you, and you. For the next hour, Maya Angelou enchanted us with her poetry. And I thought, if I had just one ounce of this woman's poise, grace, confidence, courage, the things that I could do, and then she went on to share her life story, and I was humbled. Born in the Deep South, in the midst of abject poverty and prejudice, she was abused at the age of three and stopped talking. Shuffled back and forth between her mother and grandmother, who were each trying to scratch out the barest living, she went on to become a mother herself at the age of 15. Headed off to San Francisco to seek her fortune, she took a job collecting tokens on the streetcars between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m. Her mother drove behind her with a shotgun on her lap, driving all night long, keeping watch that no one would hurt her baby again. This woman who spent years in silence. When she found her voice, she went on to speak before kings and presidents, sharing the message of the power of each individual, of the spirit that could change and touch others. I was inspired by her words, humbled by her experience, and couldn't wait to get home to tell my roommate what she had missed. And then I realized in a panic, I had to go backstage to interview this woman. So it was with shaking knees and an extended trembling hand that I touched her hand. All my thoughts and questions again went from me and all I could say was, does every clod of dirt have the potential through the pressure to become a diamond? like you? And she laughed. Honey, she said, the miracle has already happened. The gift has already been given because you are alive. And in my silence, she went on, it's not about finding the right road, but walking the path you're on with courage and dignity 
so that when you fall in those holes that are inevitable, you can let yourself cry and grieve so that when you pull yourself out and start walking that straight road again, you can sing. As I came back to my own auditorium, I opened my eyes to find Indira still standing, staring at me with tears streaming down her cheeks. And 300 pairs of eyes were turned not on me, but on her. That's all I know, I said. Thank you. It is enough, she replied. And as the evening drew to a close, I looked for her in the crowd and realized that she had entered the auditorium alone, but she was leaving now with a group of people surrounding her, engaging her, asking questions about where she would go from here. I, too, had changed that night. I had entered the auditorium as a lecturer, but I would leave as a storyteller. Maya's story for Indira, a story told for you by Lanny Peterson. And it's just an illustration of the kind of, you know, uh, emotional heavy lifting that a story can do, right? Yeah, I love that line um, that Maya Angelou says where about you got to keep walking on the path you're on and you'll fall into holes and you'll come back out and you'll you just got to learn to sing. And it was so (laughs) just powerful to me when I heard that. I actually wrote it down because I love the idea of got to keep going on the path you're on. And, and, you know, it's interesting to think about Lanny Peterson telling that story for Indira and the both of them telling that story in some ways for you. Now you've written down thoughts that you've had while listening to that story and and a story has a life like that that travels and travels and travels influencing people wherever it goes. Yeah, and Maya Angelou too as well, just such a fantastic poet and such an incredible story. Yeah. Great to hear that tale and there is a whole lot more coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's so great to be here with you on The Appleseed. I love sharing these stories with you. A story from Dolores Hydock coming up, as well as one from Priscilla Howe, one from Beatrice Bowles. Great tellers with great stories coming up. But first, you know, we love to share memories because we know that they can sometimes spark memories for you that you can share around the kitchen table or the living room. Here's a memory of mine. You know, I love going to concerts, but once upon a time, I hadn't been to many. And it was more about the idea of going to concerts. Here's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. When we were kids, there were two things, two surprises that we liked best of all. One of them was getting things in the mail. The other was getting a knock on the door from a visitor we didn't know was coming. My mother could get us to clean up the living room by saying, Oh, it's Sunday. You know how sometimes people come over to visit on Sunday? 
let's clean up the living room in case someone comes over. Or she might say, ah, oh, it's Tuesday. People like to visit on Tuesday. Let's get ready for them by straightening up the living room. Well, I'd be making up a story if I said it worked every time. It didn't work every time, but it worked a lot of the time. We loved having visitors. I never got less excited about folks coming over all through my childhood years and even when I was a teenager. I remember one time, a Sunday, and I was oh, a sophomore in high school, maybe, when a knock came at the door, and it was a neighbor come to visit. And with him, there was a guy, younger than our neighbor, tall, clean-cut, dressed in a crisp white shirt, and we all sat down to visit. And this guy opened his mouth to introduce himself, and he had an Australian accent. It was the most exotic accent that had ever come through our front door. And this Sunday, we had an international visitor. He was just a family friend of our neighbor, as it turns out. I don't even know how they were connected, really. But the neighbor had brought the Australian over because he knew my dad had lived in Australia for a while as a young man. And he thought they might hit it off, enjoy having a conversation. And they may have hit it off if they'd been given half the chance, but we kids hardly let my dad get in a word. We wanted to know everything about this Australian stranger. He was the star of the conversation. And what we learned about this guy is that he liked to travel and he liked to go to concerts. And so we asked him who he had seen in concert and also where he had seen them. We were fascinated. I saw Depeche Mode play in London, he said. Depeche Mode in London? <laughs> I said, they came here to Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City was the closest big city to where I grew up. And Depeche Mode had indeed come to Salt Lake City. I had not seen them. Did you see them? Our visitor asked. I was going to see them. I wanted to see them, I said. Well, who else have you seen? Well, he said, I saw Dire Straits in Germany. I almost went to that concert when they came here, I said. He said, I saw Talking Heads in Sydney. Talking Heads? I was going to see that show when they came through last summer, I said. Sting in Montreal, he said. I have the album, I said. And I was going to see the tour. <laughs> well, about here, my dad gave me a funny look. There wasn't a lot of meaning in the look. It was just a version of the sort of camera take that made me look for one second at how the conversation was going. There was not a question I'd asked that our international visitor hadn't answered with the name of some cool band he'd seen in concert. And there wasn't any answer he gave that I hadn't met with an assertion that I had hoped, wanted, planned, almost gone to see that very band when they came to town, whatever the band was. The conversation was not memorable beyond that. I can't, for example, as you may have noticed, remember his name. And if I met him today, his world-traveling, concert-going exploits might not have impressed me. If I met him today, I might even hear myself saying, yeah, but what are your prospects really, young man? I mean, in addition to going to concerts. But back then, going to rock concerts all over the world seemed huge, seemed to shrink my little high school life to nearly nothing. And I'd be making up a story if I said it changed me then and there. It didn't, but I think it did start to make me think about some of the things I wanted to see and do, actually see and do, and not just plan or want or hope to almost go to see and do. You have a list like that? Well, I began to make one. 
And I've seen some things since then that I'm happy to have seen. I saw Ellis Marsalis play a show with his terrific quintet in Berkeley. I went to a live taping of a Prairie Home Companion. I saw Simon and Garfunkel in their old friends' reunion tour at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. I played with a jazz trio at a Tokyo nightclub, and I played a show in Argentina with Charlie Fernandez, the blind piano player who learned English by listening to Bob Dylan records. That wasn't even on my list. It came from out of nowhere. My list of things is not as exciting as the lists some people have, but I'm happy that now it does, as it turns out, include more than talking from the comfort of my living room sofa about how I almost went to the Depeche Mode concert in Salt Lake City. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear from Dolores Haddock with a story called Perfect Match. It's about going to a dance and hoping to be matched up with just the right person. It's one of my favorite tales, and you're going to hear it in just a little bit. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through terrific songs and things we see on screen, and of course, the making and sharing of fantastic food is a rich bed for stories developed in families. I'm joined in the studio by Brenna Haddock. Brenna, it's great to have you back on The Appleseed. Thanks so much for having me again. I'm so glad to be here. You know, we've talked a little bit about some of the work that you do helping people to just form great relationships with food and life. And you can find a lot of Brenna's work at dietproof.teachable.com. And, of, of course, there's, there's, there are training resources there, right? T- tell us a little bit about how that came to be, how you're, from whence comes your interest in helping people in that way. Right. Well, after 20 years of being a dieting disaster, as I like to call myself. How and, many of us does that describe? Right. Good heavens. Yeah, it describes and, me for sure. And having a really difficult relationship with food, um, I quit dieting cold turkey. <laughs> and I did not know what that path would look like for me. And it was a little bit scary and it was a little bit crazy. And as I traveled that path, I became a certified health coach. And I was able to, through quitting diets, transform my whole life and come to this really great place where I have this amazing relationship with food and with my life and lose the weight that I wanted to lose. And so um, through my formal training as a health coach now, I have created an online coaching program that people can go through and I can do private sessions or whatever. And you can find all the information there on the website that you mentioned. Um, for people who are interested in having that kind of a transformation in their own lives. Uh, listen, a, a great relationship with food and life, who's not in? I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> we want to, and, and it's kind of, it might seem kind of odd then that we're going to have a conversation right now about pecan pie, right? Right, except it fits right in with enjoying everything that you eat. <laughs> sure, it sure does. And uh, you you have a story about pecan pie in your life that's that, that, that's a story that spans continents. 
It does. It spans continents. Um, I lived with my family in Shanghai, China mm. for three years from 2010 to 2013. And as you might imagine, there was not a lot of pecan pie to be had <laughs> in Shanghai, China. So that's not really a, a, dele- a delicacy of choice over there. So right, right. I remember one summer we were home. Uh, to visit family yeah. uh, during the summertime, and my in-laws were going to take us to to dinner, my husband and I, and just visit. And so I was so excited. I said, let's go to Mimi's because they have this amazing chocolate pecan pie that I loved, <laughs> and I had been craving it. And so they said, of course. So we went to Mimi's, sat down. They had discontinued their pecan oh, no. pie. <laughs> I was horrified. It was all I was going to eat. I wasn't even going to have an entree. I was just going to have the pecan pie. You didn't say to the server, I have traveled thousands of miles. I probably did. (laughs) I don't think it changed much. (laughs) Anyway, Mm. I got their French onion soup, which is also amazing, but it was not pecan pie. Right, yeah. So I went to work trying to recreate Mimi's chocolate pecan pie. Uh, so that I could have it with me whenever I wanted, wherever I was in the world, I could have my chocolate pecan pie, and uh, got pretty dang close, I, I have to say. So you know, I wonder. W- w- you're in China, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and and I wonder if there are if there is a enough of a difference in the commonly available ingredients, you know, in one place and another, that that it might have been more difficult for you in China to make a pecan pie than it is here. Well, it was definitely more expensive because <laughs> you'd have to go to the specialty import shops to get something as simple as, you know, um, some good high-quality chocolate chips yeah, or something sure. like that. So. Yeah. Um, yes, it's definitely easier and less expensive now that I'm back in America. <laughs> and is that pecan pie that you, you know, that the, the, the pecan pie that resulted in that quest, right? Mm-hmm. That's a pecan pie that you make often now. That's a pecan pie that I do make, that I do make now, and we love it. <laughs> so Mimi's, your loss is the, is the Haddock family's gain. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Can we put a recipe for this pecan pie on the Appleseed website? Absolutely. Oh, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. You know, you can find us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. If you go there, you'll find not only an archive filled with hundreds of episodes of the show and thousands of stories, but, uh, of course, you'll also find uh, uh, this recipe for pecan pie, which we're super excited to post there on the website. We hope that you join us there. There are lots of ways to take the show with you on your mobile device, to listen to a great story wherever you are, where wherever you might need one, even if it be China, right? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, pecan pie, my mouth is kind of watering a little bit at this moment, as it tends to do when you visit us in the studio. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much again. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> you can, of course, again, find uh, Brenna Haddock's work at dietproof.teachable.com for a great relationship with food and with life. Uh, I'm Sam Payne, and what a pleasure, Brenna, to have had you with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, and it's a pleasure to chat about them with friends. Thanks for joining me for that conversation. Lots more coming up. A Dolores Hydock story called Perfect Match about a dance coming up in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. So great to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. You know, these days, everybody's got a smartphone in their pocket, but there was a time when Dolores Haddock was a teenager, for example, when computers were still kind of a strange and foreign thing. That's how it was for her and all her peers until the day her school decided to throw a computer dance. Not dancing with computers, right? It means using a computer to find the person you're going to dance with. I'm going to let her explain it. This is a favorite story of mine called Perfect Match from Dolores Hyduck on the Appleseed. In 1968, I was a junior at Reading Central High School in Reading, Pennsylvania, where I grew up. And at Reading Central High, we had a very active and imaginative social committee that planned all kinds of special social events. And the spring of my junior year, our social committee decided that we were going to have a dance, but it wasn't going to just be the usual kind of high school dance with the cray paper streamers in the gym and punch in the cafeteria. No, we were going to do something different, something special, something that all the teen magazines said was the latest rage. We were going to have a computer dance where you filled in a questionnaire and then a computer was going to hook you up with your perfect match. <laughs> now, I know I don't have to tell you that in 1968, computers were not what they are these days. In 1968, there were no PCs, no laptops, no internet, no email, no cell phones. In 1968, you were on the technological cutting edge if you had an IBM Selectric typewriter <laughs> and a princess telephone with a lighted dial. In 1968, computers were massive metal hulks lurking behind locked doors in environmentally controlled rooms with tape drives twirling and diodes blinking, shuffling and reshuffling thick decks of rectangular punch cards. Computers were mysterious and, and unknown quantities. They were part of that whole mysterious, strange world of science. Nowadays, of course, all of us, teenagers especially, live awash in a sea of technology. But in 1968, science was for specialists. It was a world far removed from our much more familiar high school world of language and literature. In fact, at Reading Central High School, the arts and the sciences were in two completely different camps. The arts, language, history, social studies, these classes were taught by kind women <laughs> who patiently stepped us through the fundamentals of freshman composition and sophomore Spanish and were the advisors to the debate team and the audiovisual club. But the science class, were any of you science teachers? <laughs> the science classes were taught by serious women in severe brown suits and sensible brown shoes who impressed on us their philosophy that the humanities were all well and good as hobbies, but it was algebra and Newtonian physics that made the world go round. <laughs> To highlight the difference in these two camps, in my high school yearbook, my English teacher, Mrs. Edwards, wrote, Dolores, always keep love in your heart. 
The physics teacher, Mrs. Berkman, wrote, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. <laughs> and to tell you the truth, I'm really not sure which advice proved to be more useful in the long run. But the one exception to this was our junior year chemistry teacher, Mrs. Josephine Tarina, Mrs. JT, we called her. And we never knew what twist of fate or school funding budget cut or computer error landed Mrs. JT in the science department because she did not belong there. Mrs. JT loved the romance languages and the Lake District poets. She would quote to us from Baudelaire and Balzac and she seemed as baffled by the molecular structure of benzene as we were. <laughs> she would approach the big chart of the periodic table and gaze at it as if she were looking at a Zen riddle. <laughs> She'd get all misty-eyed when she spoke of the noble gases. <laughs> she taught us about protons and electrons, not in terms of positive charge and negative charge, but as if she were describing some strange tango of attraction, the mysterious push and pull of the universe that scientists might try to quantify, but poets knew could never really be measured or understood. She was our fellow traveler in the mysterious, combustible world of chemistry. And if she was frequently distracted, well, that was just a little extra bonus. Led to some <laughs> magnificent pyrotechnics. I mean, a misguided mixture of potassium metal and water sent the lab sink into convulsions and a shower of sparks. And several unfortunate encounters with a Bunsen burner left her with short sleeves and no eyebrows by the end of the term. <laughs> But if there was the occasional explosion or brush fire, it was just a little punctuation to her lectures and would help us always remember junior year chemistry class. So that was science at Reading Central High School in 1968. It was mysterious and unpredictable. And part of that whole mysterious, unpredictable world were computers. They were mysterious, too, and so that's why our social committee thought it would be a great idea to have a computer dance. Now, here's the way it was going to work. Two weeks before the dance, anyone who wanted to go signed up. You were given a five-digit number and a questionnaire to fill out. 20 questions about your own likes and dislikes and hobbies, and 20 questions about the likes and dislikes and hobbies of the kind of person you thought would be most compatible with you. You were supposed to fill in your answer in the little circles on the answer sheet, turn it in, the computer would work its magic, and two weeks later on the night of the dance you would go to school, you would be given a punch card with a five-digit number on it, the number of your perfect match. You take that card into the gym where one wall, the perfect match wall, was papered over with long strips of green and white striped computer paper that listed all the five-digit numbers and who they belonged to. And finally, you would see the name of your perfect match. Now, there was just one rule, and that was that you had to dance the first dance of the evening with your perfect match. Then after that, you could dance with whoever you wanted to dance with. But we didn't understand that. I mean, we would want to dance with this person all night. We'd probably date them the rest. We'd probably end up marrying them. I mean, this was a computer doing this. It would be perfect. <laughs> now, in junior year of high school, I was madly in love with Dave Schwartz. 
and Dave Schwartz was madly in love with me. Or he would have been if he'd known I was alive, which he did not. <laughs> Dave Schwartz was not my usual kind of crush. In freshman, sophomore years, my innocent infatuations had been with intellectual types, moody boys like Michael Kelly, whose long brown hair flopped down into his brooding brown eyes as he hunched over his guitar at the school hootenanny, singing mournful songs about Scottish women named Heather, whose long blonde hair floated out on the wind as they stood out on the misty moors waiting for their own true love who would never return from the sea. <laughs> I don't know, somehow in freshman year there was something appealing about all of that damp longing. But by junior year, by junior year, I was ready for less drizzle and more sizzle. <laughs> I was ready for Dave Schwartz. <laughs> Dave Schwartz had reddish blonde hair and muscles. And he shaved. <laughs> Every day in junior year, he shaved. He was an Eagle Scout. And you could tell just looking at him that that Boy Scout knew something about nature. And never mind those chemistry experiments. This was a fellow who could teach a girl something about biology. <laughs> and I just knew he was my perfect match. And now all I had to do was convince the computer of the same thing. Well, I signed up to go to the dance, got my five-digit number, got my questionnaire. I chewed on the end of my number two pencil as I pondered. Question number one, did I like pets? Well, I knew that Dave Schwartz had a big German shepherd, so I bubbled in, yes, even though the only pet we'd ever had at our house was a goldfish that died after three days when my little brother dumped an entire container of parsley flakes in the tank. <laughs> Question number two, did I like sports? If I didn't have to watch them, play them, run, catch, or dribble anything. <laughs> but I knew how Dave Schwartz would answer that question, so yes. And on and on, not one answer accurately reflected who I was or what I really thought. Every answer was simply designed to get the computer to hook me up with Dave, Dave Schwartz. <laughs> well, the night of the big dance arrived. I got ready to go. I put on my turquoise Jean Meyer of Norwich sweater, my turquoise and yellow plaid miniskirt, my turquoise fishnet stockings, a dab of Jean Nate cologne behind each ear, inside each elbow. I was ready to go. My best friend's dad came, picked me up. We drove to school. He left us at the front door. We went inside. The front hall was crowded with kids grabbing for their perfect match punch cards. Carol and I snatched up our cards, ran into the gym, ran over to the perfect match wall where there was a swarm of students standing there, staring at the wall, staring at their cards, staring at each other in horrified disbelief. <laughs> and in five seconds, that same look was on my face, too. My perfect match was Danny DeFazio? <laughs> Danny DeFazio flunked shop three times. <laughs> he rolled his own cigarettes. <laughs> and he wore so much grease in his hair that his comb left deep parallel tracks in it like corduroy. And he was my perfect match? What I didn't know 
was that Danny DeFazio had filled out his questionnaire hoping the computer would hook him up with Cheryl Martin, the tall blonde captain of the varsity cheerleading squad and exactly the kind of outdoorsy athletic girl I tried to pass myself off to be. But Cheryl Martin had gotten hooked up with Nicholas Belinsky, a flute-playing sophomore and classical music nut, because she had answered her questionnaire hoping the computer would hook her up with Bill Westerhoff, the sophisticated senior, who was the only person we knew in high school who actually read the New York Times Review of Books. <laughs> and on and on. We had all done it. We all tried to trick the computer. And as a result, we all got hooked up with the last person on earth we would ever want to be seen with. I mean, the computer had probably done a great job of matching up our imaginary selves with our imaginary dream dates, but, but our real selves? Our real selves were left standing there, staring at the wall, feeling folded, spindled, and mutilated. <laughs> The band, Dr. Dredd and the Operators, <laughs> began wailing out the opening bars of Hang On Sloopy. <laughs> and thus began the longest three minutes of our young lives, the required first dance with our perfect match. As soon as the final chords reverberated off the gymnasium walls, we all smiled at each other through gritted teeth, pretended we saw somebody across the room we had to talk to, and we scooted off to find our usual friends at our usual spots. The athletes and cheerleaders all hung out at one end of the bleachers. The honors class kids were there in the front hall. The college prep types gathered around the refreshments table. The greasers slipped out the side door for a smoke. <laughs> in five seconds, we had sorted ourselves out. <laughs> But then, as the evening went on, we inched out of our corners, asked each other to dance, laughed about the stupid computer, our protons and electrons mixing it up in that strange tango of attraction, that push and pull of the universe that scientists might try to quantify, but poets know can never be truly measured or understood. I did get to dance with Dave Schwartz that night. I'm pretty sure I asked him. His wool jacket scratched my cheek as I leaned up against his shoulder for a slow dance. I breathed in deeply. Suddenly, my head felt light. My face went hot. My stomach did flip-flops. I thought, oh, this must be true love. And then I realized, no, it was just a chemical reaction. His English leather aftershave colliding with my Jean Nate cologne. It was making me feel a little dizzy. <laughs> well, it didn't take me long to figure out that Dave Schwartz and I had nothing to talk about, nothing in common. And he probably was not my perfect match after all. Though the evening was not a total loss, I did spend 30 minutes out in the front hall talking with Bill Westerhoff about J.D. Salinger and The Catcher in the Rye, and we made a date to meet at the library the next Wednesday. And in the end, I had to admit that Mrs. J.T. was right. Chemistry, at least human chemistry, will always be more art than science. And no computer will ever solve the equation that has been baffling human beings since the beginning of time, that mysterious mathematics of the heart that makes one plus one equal one.
Dolores Hydock with Perfect Match here on the Apple Sea. Up now, a story about Anansi, the trickster spider. This is told by Priscilla Howe. And in this story, you get the tale of Turtle, who is tired of Anansi's tricks and decides it's finally time to play one back on the spider. Here's Anansi and Turtle on the Apple Seed, told for you by Priscilla Howe. Happy to bring it to you. about Anansi the spider? Well, he was a tricky, tricky spider. Sort of a man, sort of a spider. One day, Anansi made a big stew. Oh, Anansi loved to eat. He loved, loved, loved to eat. So he made a big, big stew to eat. It was cooking, and it smelled delicious, and he was just about to give himself a big bowl of it when along came Turtle. Turtle was far from her home. And she said, Anansi, Anansi, I'm very hungry. Could I have some of your stew? Anansi never liked to share. He said, oh, uh, turtle, yes, of course you can have some stew. In Nigeria, quite often, if you go to someone's house, they give you something to eat, always. Well, Anansi didn't want to share. But uh, turtle, you can have some stew, but look at you. Your feet are filthy, your hands are filthy, your face is filthy. Go down to the river and wash first. So Turtle walked all the way down the dusty path to the river. She washed her feet, she washed her hands, she washed her face, and then she walked all the way back up the dusty path to where Anansi was finishing his first bowl of stew. Oh, Turtle, nice to see you. Anansi, Anansi, could I have some food? I'm so hungry. Oh, Turtle, you can have some food, but look at you. Your feet are filthy, your hands are filthy, your face is filthy. Go down to the river and wash first. It's not polite. Turtle walked all the way down the dusty path to the river. She washed her feet, she washed her hands, she washed her face, then she walked all the way back up the dusty path where Anansi was finishing his second bowl of stew. Oh, so good. Oh, turtle, hello. Anansi, please. I'm so hungry, could I have some food? Anansi said, look at you. Your feet are filthy, your hands are filthy, your face is filthy. Go down to the river and wash. Turtle walked all the way back down the dusty path to the river. She washed her feet, she washed her hands, she washed her face, and this time she walked back up the long way through the grass so that when she arrived, her feet were clean, her hands were clean, her face was clean. But I'll tell you also that Anansi's pot and his bowl were also clean. There was no food left. Turtle said, Anansi? Anansi said, I'm so sorry. There's none left. We're so slow. Turtle said, oh, I guess I'll go then. And Turtle went on her way. But the next week, she invited Anansi to her house, which was way down the river in the water. Anansi was excited. He put on his best jacket. Ooh-hoo! 
party. He loved a party. He always loved a party. There's going to be food. There's going to be dancing. Ooh, I love a party. So he went down to the river, way down the river, where he knew that Turtle lived. He was ready. He jumped on the water, and he skittered around, and he skittered around, and he skittered around, and he couldn't sink down because he didn't weigh enough. He jumped out on the bank, and Turtle came swimming up. Come on, Anansi. We're going to eat now. Anansi said, oh, don't, don't, save some food for me. Turtle said, huh, of course, but hurry up. And so Turtle swam back down in the river, and Anansi jumped onto the water, but he skittered around, and he skittered around, and he skittered around. He just was not heavy enough to sink down in the water. He jumped back out. Oh, Turtle came swimming up. Anansi, we already started. You know, you're, you're late. Anansi said, oh, please, save some food for me. Is there music? Is there dancing? Turtle said, oh, yes, there's, there's music, there's dancing, but hurry up. The food's almost gone. Oh, Anansi didn't know what to do. Turtle swam back down, and Anansi looked around. He saw some rocks. He put them in his pockets of his best jacket, and then he jumped on the water, and now he was heavy enough to go straight down to the bottom. Ah, oh, there was food. There were other guests. There was t Turtle. He was just, Anansi was just reaching out for a little bit of the yams that were on the plate, and Turtle said, Anansi, have some manners. You don't wear your jacket inside the house. So Anansi took off the jacket, and without the weight of those rocks, he went whoop, right back up to the surface of the water, and he jumped out on the bank. And you know as well as I do that Anansi got just as good as he gave. And that's the story of Anansi and Turtle. Priscilla Howe with an Anansi story called Anansi and Turtle here on The Apple Seed. And our final tale today is a little like a tale you may know, the story of the fisherman and his wife about a man who catches a magic fish and the wife who gives the fish increasingly selfish demands, right? Making increasingly selfish wishes. In this story, however, there are only two characters, a fairy and an old woman who lives in a vinegar bottle. How she ended up in the strange little home, the story doesn't say, but she's clearly a poor woman who doesn't have much to her name, and out of the goodness of her heart, a traveling fairy seeks to help with that. Now, what we learn from the story, of course, is to be grateful for the gifts you receive. This is a story told by Beatrice Bowles, the old woman who lived in a vinegar bottle on the apple seed. The Old Woman Who Lived in a Vinegar Bottle Once upon a time, there was a fairy who flew about north, south, east, and west, all about the business fairies do best, casting spells, granting wishes, and stirring up a bit of mischief here and there. When all of a sudden, she heard a little voice coming from a vinegar bottle. The fairy stopped, listened, and what do you think she heard? 
the voice of a little old woman. It's a shame! It's a shame! It's a shame! I didn't ought to live in this little vinegar bottle. No! What I should have is a nice cozy cottage out in the country with roses climbing up the walls. Very well, said the fairy. Turn round three times when you go to bed tonight and see what you see by morning light. So the old woman turned round three times, went straight to bed, and in the morning, when she woke up, she was in a cozy cottage out in the country with roses climbing up the walls, and she was very happy. But she quite forgot to thank the fairy. The fairy flew north, south, east, and west, all about the business fairies do best. And then she thought, I'll go see that old woman and see how happy she is now. She flew to the rose-covered cottage, listened at the rose-covered window, and what do you think she heard? It's a shame, it's a shame, it's a shame. I didn't ought to live in this little cottage. I should have a big city house with lace curtains at the windows and people living up and down my street. Very well. Turn round three times when you go to bed tonight and see what you see by morning light. So the old woman turned round three times, went straight to bed, and in the morning, when she woke up, she was in a big city house with lace curtains at the windows and people living up and down the street. She was very happy, but she quite forgot to thank the fairy. The fairy flew north, south, east, and west, all about the business fairies do best. Then she flew to the big city house, listened at the lace curtain window, and what do you think she heard? It's a shame, it's a shame, it's a shame. I didn't ought to live in this city house. No, I'm fit to be queen of a golden castle with a golden crown and a golden throne and people to order about all day long. Very well. Turn round three times when you go to bed tonight and see what you see by morning light. So the old woman turned round three times, went straight to bed, and in the morning, when she woke up, she was queen of a golden castle with a golden throne, a golden crown, and people to order about all day long. And so she did. And she was very happy. But she quite forgot to thank the fairy. The fairy flew north, south, east, and west, all about the business fairies do best. Then she flew to the golden castle window, and what do you think she heard? It's a shame, it's a shame, it's a shame. I didn't ought to be queen of this little castle. No, 
What I am fit for is to be ruler of the whole round world. Very well. Turn round three times when you go to bed tonight and see what you see by morning light. So the old woman turned round three times, went straight to bed, and in the morning, when she woke up, she was back in her vinegar bottle. The Old Woman Who Lived in a Vinegar Bottle, told by Beatrice Bowles. That's going to do it for us in an hour that has featured stories from Dolores Hydock and Priscilla Howe, and at the top of the hour, Lanny Peterson. Such a pleasure to be with you today. Of course, you can join us at byuradio.org slash Appleseed for more tellers and stories. And, of course, uh, this hour was written by Samantha Danes. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison, our producer Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.